0: listening to Amphibicast. Welcome back, everyone. Thanks for joining me again. Tonight, my guest is Kathleen Higgins, and Kathleen has done some pretty extensive research into spindly leg syndrome. And if you're unfamiliar with spindly leg syndrome, it's uh, kind of a developmental thing that happens, uh, I guess, during or after metamorphosis for a number of reasons that uh, we're going to get into and we're going to cover. Because I know that spindly leg syndrome is uh, it's a difficult problem, especially for certain people who are starting out breeding frogs. So we're going to cover all that and, you know, how it pertains to husbandry and whatnot. But um, before we do that, of course, thanks to everyone for the nice five-star reviews on Apple Podcast. Five-star review and some nice comments is, you know, great way to support the show. And I know there's a couple of people who have actually given reviews on Spotify, which I really wasn't sure you could do. But, um, you know, I, I've, I've got a nice five-star review on Spotify, too. So... Uh, if you're on Spotify, check that out. That's another way to support the show. And for everything else, uh, I'm going to recommend that everyone just click on the single link in the show description, which is the link tree that'll take you to everything for the podcast, everything from, uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and it'll also take you to the amphibicast merch stop, a uh, merch shop. Uh, I've got some pretty cool stuff on there, t-shirts, stickers, et cetera, whatnot, which is pretty cool and uh, i've also got a link to in situ ecosystems and if you are a listener and you make a make a purchase through the through that link uh you get a 10 percent discount off of your purchase which is pretty cool and a small commission comes back to me at no cost to you and uh, to date i check in my stats i've already seen one listener who already got 10 percent off an order so it's a no-brainer if you're looking for a good quality vivarium that's really geared towards frogs check out the link make a purchase through there you get a discount pretty cool. So other than that, uh, I think I've I've covered everything as usual. So uh, let's get into it tonight. Kathleen, how are you doing? Welcome. Thank you for joining me tonight.
1: Hi, thanks for having me. I'm doing well. Excited to be here.
0: It's my pleasure. I've been looking forward to this conversation for some time. I've been I've been trying to do an episode about spindly leg.
1: Yeah. I mean, I'm glad that I can get this information out there to people so that they can inform their decisions when it comes to husbandry and all that. So I'm happy to share. That's that's exactly why I did the work.
0: Yeah. So why don't we start off with you? Why don't you tell us your story? How did your interest in amphibians begin and what led you to work with them?
1: Yeah, sure. So uh, let's see. Well, I mean, Broadly speaking, I've always been an animal freak. My life school has always been to make the world a better place for animals in general in some way or another. Um, I ended up spending some time in the world of conservation biology um, for for my undergraduate thesis and then for my master's degree to do this. And um, my interest in amphibians just really developed in response to their need for conservation work. Um, so I got into school at Simon Fraser university, which is in British Columbia, Canada. And I was going to do a master's of science in conservation biology. And I wanted to choose a project that would allow me to make a difference. And well, if, if you don't already know when it comes to conservation, amphibians basically need all the help they can get right now. Um, so I chose to work with frogs and it wasn't until I actually started my studies that I, I really learned to appreciate just how incredible they are. And I would say that frogs are definitely among my favorite animals uh, today. So, yeah.
0: Good good choice. (laughs) Very good choice. And you you worked in Panama for a while, right? You did some of your research down there?
1: Yeah. So I was very fortunate that I did the majority of my master's degree down in Panama. I only really came back to Canada when my supervisor told me I had to. (laughs) Um, So I was down there for... Uh you know a six month stint, then an eight month stint, then a six month stint um between two thousand twenty seventeen and twenty nineteen and then I came back here in the late twenty nineteen
0: What was it like observing frogs in the wilds in panama
1: uh, it's just heaven I mean just heaven not not just the frogs but all the animals um I just put on my headlamp after dinner every night and go out and I would be able to observe twelve different species of frog easily and, you know, listen to them while I went to sleep and just identify each call I heard at night. And that was my lullaby. It was just heaven. (laughs) I I miss it a lot. Um, Not nearly as much frog diversity here in Vancouver, but it's still pretty good.
0: Yeah. Were there any particular species that you saw that you you didn't expect to see or like, can you give us a couple of, of examples of some of the stuff that you saw and maybe some things that might've surprised you?
1: Something that might have surprised me, oh gosh, I mean, everything surprised me is um the shirt? i I wasn't prepared for the diversity <laughs> that I saw um I did have the I did have the the chance to go into the Darien for like a short expedition just to survey an area that they were proposing um for a national park um, and I was able to observe a critically endangered species out in the wild, which was really, really cool called um, Krugaster evanesco that I only seen in captivity. So that was pretty awesome. Um, I don't know if any species in particular was surprising that I observed. Uh, I saw a lot of frogs, (laughs) it just kind of blurs together,
0: Um, yeah 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 no i'm i just i've i've had conversations with different people in panama i know every once in a while someone will come across something that they didn't expect like uh, a while back i had a i had a guest uh, sam sucre and he's he's situated down there in panama and he happened upon a a lemur a lemur tree frog and that was like yeah. yeah it was really really incredible i guess it was
1: yeah yeah that would have been amazing no i didn't have anything really like shockingly rare or surprising that I saw Um, nothing like that that I can think of right now. Maybe when I finish this podcast, then I'll think of something. But um, I mean, most of the species that I observed were were the ones that were doing well population wise.
0: Yeah, I'm always envious of people who get to go to Central and South America. It's just it's not something that's going to happen for me. So I I always I always like to pick everybody's brain about what they saw and where they saw it. And I don't know, it's just something that always always fascinated me.
1: I mean, it's an experience that I'll be grateful for until I die. Like it's, it's, I'm, it's one of the things I'm still thankful for every day, um, that I got to have that experience and see that kind of level of biodiversity. And it's really made me appreciate nature just in the planet so much more too.
0: Well, I'm definitely jealous if I, (laughs) if I haven't made that clear already. So tell us, (laughs) tell us about short leg syndrome for the listeners who aren't familiar or people who might have kind of a, a a vague idea Excuse me, spindly. Why did I say short leg? Spindly leg, spindly
1: I knew what you meant. (laughs) S-L-S, so spindly leg syndrome, where short legs, the legs can be short too. They're spindly and they're short. Um, But it's it's a disease or a syndrome, I guess, characterized by the underdevelopment or sometimes even the complete absence of the limbs, usually the forelimbs. Um, And it occurs in the tadpoles during the final stages of metamorphosis or um, freshly metamorphosed froglets. Um, why study it? Well, uh, there's there's two reasons. The first one is that because amphibians are, are declining so rapidly on a global scale, there's a number of species that are being kept on life support right now in captive breeding programs, unfortunately, and the success of these programs is pretty limited. Um, and at least part of the reason for this is that there's just a number of these health problems that occur in captivity, and spindly leg syndrome is one of them. Uh, the flip side is that it's also an animal welfare issue. So for hobbyist zoos, and aquariums, uh, these metamorphs that hatch out, um, they're unable to move or feed in that state. And if they're not euthanized, especially if they're in a vivarium and you can't find them to euthanize them, there's a lot of suffering that goes on there, right? Because they they die of starvation or they drown eventually. So it's a big animal welfare issue as well. So it would be good to find a cure for this.
0: Yeah, fortunately, I've never, I've never had it personally, but I've run across the odd person who has, and I know a lot of people were really curious about what went into the, like, what was the cause behind it. I know that there's a lot of factors behind that, and we're going to get into that too. But I just have a couple other questions. First of all, is there a specific? I know you mentioned it before a little bit, but is there a specific stage during tadpole development where SLS becomes inevitable?
1: Uh, as far as I know, we we don't have an answer to that question yet. At what point it's most important? If I had to guess, though, based on what I know about foreland development and tadpoles, I would say that, um, you could probably curb it if, um God, I mean, if they reach the final stages of metamorphosis, like peak metamorphosis, uh, that's when it's too late. Because what I think is going on is basically that they're they're not sequestering enough calcium in their bodies prior to peak metamorphosis. But we can get into that when I talk about my research. It's kind of complicated. Long well, story short, probably not an answer to that question yet.
0: Okay, no, I, t- I totally understand. I just I've had a couple of people ask me that as well, and um, I wasn't mm-hmm. I wasn't I wasn't sure how to answer it either. So I figured I would run it by you since you're the expert. No,
1: it's. It's a great question. I have my suspicions. Um, and hopefully, um, when I lay out sort of what I think is going on physiologically for it, then people who listen to this podcast will also maybe have their own theories on it.
0: Okay. I gotcha. Um, another question before we get into the paper, you chose to work with, um, I always struggle with, with pronunciations of species that aren't in the hobby that much. Is it a Dinobates? Is yeah, uh, yeah and Dinobotis, Geminisei. say. I, I wasn't sure if it was Geminisei or if, it, I mean, I know what Gemini is, but I wasn't sure if it was Geminisei or Geminisei.
1: No, you got it. All
0: right. Well, in any event, why choose that species?
1: Yeah. Um. So it was really just like why I got into working with frogs was that there was just a very immediate need for help addressing this particular species. Um, and Dinobotis, is a critically endangered uh, species of dart frog, uh, from a very small area in the lowlands of Panama. And the remainder of their their habitat is actually currently contained within a mining jurisdiction area. So, the possibility of extinction in the wild for them is very real, unfortunately. So, uh, I got a travel grant for my master's degree. I wanted to go down to Panama, and then down there they have a, a breeding center called the Panama Amphibian Rescue and Conservation Project, and they began breeding A. geminosa down there in 2016. Um, basically in response to the fact that their situation is so dire, but in 2016, when they started breeding them, basically they were losing over half of their F1 generations to SLS. So I went down there to fix this problem because basically it was like, okay, you got a paid master's degree student coming down here. What do you want me to do? And there you go.
0: Did you focus specifically on this species uh, from scratch or did you base it on like similar dendrobatids, like, uh, because I know many species of dart frog develop spindly leg syndrome. Did you come into it with a background from other species and then transpose it towards adenobates, or did you just kind of start with them?
1: Yeah, I mean, I started off by just scouring the literature for anything and everything when it came to spindly leg syndrome, just scraping together whatever information I could Um, but it was scarce, very, very, very scarce. Um, and to start off, I had very little to go off of, to be honest. So, I mean, yes, but honestly, like the literature is so scarce on spindly leg syndrome when I started that, like, there wasn't any more information on dendrobatids than other frogs at all. Um, yeah.
0: (laughs) Interesting. That makes sense. Yeah, 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 yeah. I, I. It's weird because dart frogs have a pretty dedicated following, and I think that the, the well, the dart frog community is a little different from other frog communities. And I know a lot of people value research and science, and and basically the, the a lot of the work that you're doing. So I know it's something that's always been it's been on different forums and whatnot. But um I mean, I was never I've heard different things and whatnot, but. Um, Well,
1: yeah, I mean, I I could add to that by saying that, like, I definitely consulted with a lot of hobbyists and I spent a lot of time just um, perusing through um, different forums for poison dart frog enthusiasts and and trying to get information there. Um, Ultimately, though, like it was all over the place. People were so many people had different suggestions for what the cause was and they all seemed very sure of it. But I like either the sample sizes were really limited, or it wasn't a powerful experiment, or it was just anecdotal. So like, when it came to actual peer reviewed published papers, that wasn't just anecdotal, I pretty much had nothing to go off of.
0: I see. Yeah, that was kind yeah. of the similar concern I had as well. I mean, it's obviously, it's not to discredit anybody who, who you know, had different um, opinions and findings. But um, yeah, there really wasn't anything I could find that was, like you said, peer reviewed and published in a journal that was you know, like you said, it wasn't just um anecdotal evidence or just personal experience based on a couple of frogs, but um Yeah. Why don't we well let's get into the paper if, if you want. And um I have I I have the abstract in front of me. And this is uh, observations on spindly leg syndrome in a captive uh, population of a uh, adenobates. Again, it's uh I, right? Geminis I. Geminis you got okay. it, yes. Yeah. All right. Um so you address multiple issues in this. You different factors that uh, affected tadpole development specifically water quality and vitamin content um can you walk walk us through it from start to finish walk us through the whole thing what were some of your experiments how were they done and what were the results
1: all right this might take a minute so (laughs) we'll start off so i did two experiments um and i'll start off by talking about the first one We were just talking about how there were many sort of putative causes for SLS circulating in different um, hobbyist communities, zookeeper communities. And um, I don't want to discredit those because like that's important in science. The first step is observation. And so those anecdotes count for something. And that's where I went to choose what I wanted to test experimentally in my first experiment. So the first hypothesis I tested was that SLS is caused by a deficiency in B vitamins. This idea came from a book by Wright and Whittaker. It's called *Amphibian uh, Husbandry and Medicine*, um, and it's kind of the Bible of amphibian medicine uh, used in these captive breeding projects. And in that book, it basically said that if you add vitamin B complex to the water of tadpoles at a dosage of one milliliter per gallon, it will quote-unquote drastically reduce SLS prevalence. Um, interestingly, there was no um, no reference or or Peer-reviewed paper, so this was also just anecdotal observations by the the veterinarian authors. So that was the first one I was going to test because I was like, okay, it's in it's in the Bible of of frog medicine, so I should probably see check this out. Uh, The next one I tested was that SLS is caused by a deficiency in folic acid, and uh, it's either in like a deficiency in folic acid in the diet of the breeding female or in the tadpole. This one I scraped from zookeeper and hobbyist communities um, where I noticed that it was a very I had a few basically like good friends that were zookeepers um, or hobbyists that swore that this was the cause and it was widely circulated in these communities. I don't know if this is something you found. Um, So I wanted to just kind of look into this and see why they thought it and debunk it if it wasn't true. I suspect that the idea comes from the fact that folic acid deficiency in pregnant humans um, can lead to congenital limb deformities. So that was hypothesis two. And then the last one I tested was the hypothesis that raising tadpoles in reconstituted reverse osmosis water, instead of just regular plain carbon filter water, reduces SLS prevalence. This one was the only one that was actually based on a peer-reviewed paper that had been done the year before. And it was a study published on Adalopis glyphos tadpoles, also at the PARCP, the Panama Project. Um, And they They found that s l s prevalence was much higher in carbon filter water than reconstituted reverse osmosis water, so I wanted to see if this could be generalized to other species, in which case there's probably something important going on there. All right, so should I stop and let you ask any questions if you have anything about the hypotheses or should I just move forward
0: uh no you can you can go ahead um well one one question actually um, yeah is this Okay, so we're talking about vitamin content, and we're talking about, excuse me, I shouldn't say content, but we're talking about vitamins, and we're talking about mineral content in the water. Are these two experiments that ran independently of each other, or they ran sort of concurrent?
1: They ran concurrently. And this is the tricky thing, was that I was working with a real breeding population of critically endangered frogs. So not only was my sample size limited, but I mean... I had to be very careful with any manipulations that I did experimentally because I can't mess with these breeding individuals. So I had to come up with a very creative experimental design to do this. Um, I I guess I can kind of explain it. Uh, So basically what I did was I had six breeding pairs, each breeding pair contained in one tank. I standardized the habitat in each breeding tank. So they had, you know, the same objects in them. And then I surveyed those tanks every day for the appearance of eggs, followed the development of the eggs and waited until I saw a tadpole appear in, uh, in a pool of water, also standardized in the tank. When I found a tadpole, I picked it up and I put it into a petri dish. And then in those petri dishes, the environments were standardized. And those petri dishes either contain carbon filter water with vitamin B added, carbon filter water with folic acid added, reverse osmosis water or unsupplemented carbon filter water. And then I just measured the prevalence of SLS, the mortality, and the amount of time it took for the tadpoles to reach metamorphosis in each one of these types of water treatment groups. Um, Basically, while controlling for all other environmental factors, either in the environment of the experiment or statistically later on.
0: Silly question, but did you raise the tadpoles individually like one per petri dish or did you raise them in groups
1: no not silly at all uh they were raised individually each one in their own petri dish
0: okay and was there a preferred temperature that you kept them at
1: uh everything was standardized in the container so it's always kept at like um they have like an air conditioner and it's kept at 20 is it 27 degrees celsius don't quote me on that It's been a while since I've remembered this, Um, but yeah, temperature and humidity and everything in those containers that I was working in was already standardized.
0: Okay. I see. Go on. So what, what was the, what was the result? (laughs) Well, um, the
1: result was very frustrating actually, because at the end of my first experiment, after several months waiting for 86 tadpoles to emerge, five out of the 86 had SLS. I mean, this was great, like we want, we want the tadpoles to be healthy, but it was incredibly frustrating because b- before I started that experiment, there was a 68% prevalence rate of SLS in the metamorphs. So it was like the double slit experiment of frogs. I looked at them and the problem just like it disappeared. Um, so out of the five that had SLS, four were from unsupplemented carbon filter water And one was from unsupplemented reverse osmosis water. Um, One could speculate, but none of the tadpoles to have SLS were from the vitamin supplemented groups. But honestly, like the low variation and the distribution of the data made it pretty much statistically useless. Um, Meaning there was no way that we could really say that the distribution of SLS in this result was not due to chance. Uh, So basically... Uh, The fact that, that like the most interesting thing that happened from my first experiment was the SLS nearly disappeared from the population. And this told me that something unknown, some unknown factor had changed, just changed like just prior to me starting the experiment that actually made the SLS almost disappear from the population. And I had no idea what it was. So that was my first experiment.
0: And, um, how did you, I'm just trying to just kind of picture the methods in my head. How did you go about adding vitamins to the tadpole? And did you just add something directly to the water or like, I'm cause I'm just trying to, I'm trying to, trying to picture it.
1: I had a standardized mixing procedure where I like calculated the parts per million. Um, I don't remember the math of course, but I ended up basically mixing either vitamin B complex or folic acid into, uh, a standardized like thing of vitamin water mix that i had and then i would micropipette those into uh oh no 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 i got to remember this is 3 years ago so i'm just trying to remember no i would actually i would mix the water ahead of time that contained the vitamin concentrations and then i would use those to be added directly to the tadpole water or the water that the tadpoles were added into so each tadpole's petri dish had its own water source that i was using if that makes any sense
0: Oh, yeah, I see. I see. I'm always curious because I mean, in the hobby, we have pre like pre prepared supplements. And very rarely do we Yeah, yeah, like very rarely do we add things to the water unless we were doing like, um, like a vitamin A soak or something like that, where people would add powdered vitamin A directly to the water and let the frog soak. Oh,
1: for sure. For sure. Yeah, Yeah, no, this was because they were in these individual petri dishes, which was such a weird setup. I basically would go to the lab, mix up the water ahead of time, um, after some complicated, you know, math, um and using a micropipette, and then I would just have my vitamin B water and my, you know, my folic acid water and then my regular waters.
0: And what about the reverse osmosis? Was there a particular like I mean, I have I have one in my house. I have a three stage. Was there a particular type of RO system that you guys used? Did you like did you test the water quality or like what was What was that? What was uh, behind that?
1: Yeah. um, So for the entire course of the experiment, I was incrementally like testing water quality in in different places throughout the filtration process. I can't remember the name of the reverse osmosis system that we had. It was a three part system though, and it was standardized at the project before I got there. And it was the same system that was actually used in the previous paper I was telling you about. Um, So the parts per million and all that are are written up in another paper.
0: I see. Okay. Okay. Yeah. So what happened what happened next then?
1: Sure. Uh all right. So I got to this point where my SLS had disappeared from the population. And I was wondering what the heck happened. Uh the only two factors that I could think of that maybe could have changed this were um the way I was feeding the frogs and the husbandry protocol that I used, because of course everything has to be standardized for an experiment. So um Before I started the experiment, they were getting, uh, the breeding pairs were getting cricket nymphs two times a week and springtails once a week. And then when I started my experiment, they were getting cricket nymphs three times a week. And this was literally just because of a shortage of springtails at the onset of the experiment. So that was the one thing that changed in the diet of the breeding pairs. So I noted that. The other factor that changed was that um, I had a very, very rigid husbandry protocol that I was following. So instead of just being given um, pieces whole pieces of food f- like fish flakes I was measuring uh, amounts of crushed fi- fish flakes and in, in micrograms and giving it to the tadpoles in a standardized way and the same thing with the water changes religiously changing 50% of the water every other day so I basically had to decide I only had you know <laughs> at this point I had been spending like eight months in Panama already and you're not supposed to spend more than a year and a half for a master's degree um, so I was running out of time. I had one more shot to figure this out. I didn't have a sample size that was large enough to ta- test, uh, both of these factors. So I went with the effects of tadpole husbandry and I decided to test that one in a second experiment. Um, water change and feeding frequency affect water quality and nutrition, of course. And both of these have been said to be factors in SLS anecdotally. So that was uh, enough for me. So I went on with a second experiment. All right. Should I move on to experiment two? Yeah, please. Okay. All right. So this time I did the same thing, same methodology, pretty much. I just had different treatments. So I raised tadpoles in one of two husbandry treatment groups. I had what was called an intensive husbandry treatment group, which recreated the same care conditions that the tadpoles were in during my first experiment. So more frequent water changes and feeding. And then I had what was called a medium husbandry treatment group, which recreated the care conditions that I assumed were going on before I started my first experiment. So, you know, um, a short staffed breeding project like that, maybe they were getting less frequent water changes in feeding and slightly larger feeding portions because they were being given whole chunks of fish flake instead of small pinches of pre-measured fish flakes. So basically it was, yeah, less water changes, larger feeding. So the idea here was that I was expecting to see about 68% SLS prevalence in the medium husbandry treatment group because it was recreating those same conditions that were there before I arrived. Um, And then I was expecting to see almost no SLS in the intensive husbandry treatment group. But this didn't happen. (laughs) So again, Almost no SLS metamorphs emerged at the end of my experiment. This experiment had 45 tadpoles reach for metamorphosis. And out of those 45 tadpoles, six of them had SLS. And, um, or sorry, eight of them had SLS. Six of them were from the intensive husbandry treatment group. And two of them were from the medium husbandry treatment group, which is actually the opposite of what we expected. How is this sounding? Are we able to follow still?
0: Yeah, please go ahead.
1: Okay. Yeah. All right. It's a it's a wild ride, so I just got to check in. All right, so I finished my second experiment. I still had no SLS. I had no idea what was going on at this point. Um, <laughs> basically, there was still not enough variation in my data to use it statistically. And uh, well, I had a bit of a rough time. I reflected for a long time about what the heck was going on with this population, and then I remembered something incredibly important which was that at the beginning of my second experiment, when I had those six tadpoles emerge with SLS, they emerged one after another. So the first six tadpoles in that experiment metamorphosed with spindly leg syndrome. And this was like the most spindly leg syndrome I had seen in that population since I arrived in Panama. So that was pretty important. And then after that, it just teetered off and the remaining 40 or so all emerged without SLS almost. So Something weird happened at that time point and I was thinking about this and how weird it was and then it occurred to me like a hammer hitting me over the head that the phosphate reactor unit on the building I had been working in was actually unplugged and I discovered this right at the onset of the experiment when I was getting all those high SLS tadpoles. So I just found this during an equipment check. Um I didn't have the sample size to include this as an additional variable so I called my supervisor and we decided that we were just going to fix it and keep going on and take a note of it. And we did. So the phosphate reactor was repaired and then all the SLS disappeared from the population after that. So that was probably the factor that um, that was going on. And then it gets worse. Then I discovered that the same phosphate reactor that had been broken was actually installed at the amphibian project, like right before I started my first experiment. So that was almost definitely the missing factor that was causing the fluctuations in SLS. Yeah.
0: Okay, I'm not I have no idea what a phosphate reactor is. Can you just maybe okay. Yeah, just explain oh, I'm that. I'm
1: so sorry. It's okay. Of course, yeah. No, a phosphate reactor is it's just a piece of equipment, a fancy piece of filtration equipment that removes phosphates from the water. And it's used usually in um saltwater aquariums.
0: Okay, I see. Um,
1: it basically uh, high phosphates can be a problem for people who keep corals because it uh, it limits the amount of free calcium in the water because phosphate binds to calcium. So, yeah, they installed a phosphate reactor, which removes excess phosphates from the water right before I began experiment one, right before SLS disappeared.
0: So, okay. There's,
1: Please okay. ask as many questions as you need. Cause this is like a lot. Okay.
0: I, I, I have, I have a few. So uh, okay. just, just for the, the, the timeline here. Um, well before that actually. So I'm assuming that, that the water source for the facility was coming from, was this coming from like an untreated well? Was this coming from river water? Was this coming it's from rainwater?
1: city water. Okay. I see. So regular municipal water source. It goes through a carbon filter first, then it goes through a phosphate filter. Um, And that is the water that comes out of the automated misting systems. And that is the water that the tadpoles normally are reared in. Um, The project started experimenting with using reconstituted reverse osmosis water instead of that water source and started experimenting with uh, phosphate reactors as well. And it was all kind of just like up in the air. We were trying to figure out what was best.
0: Yeah, there's always been a lot of debate about the type of water that we use for tadpoles, and some people have a preference for reverse osmosis. Some people have a preference for reverse osmosis with minerals added back, and some people will just use aged tap water. I, I've used I've used all three. I mean, me personally, I haven't noticed a difference, but obviously, I mean, I'm not dealing with the same situation that you, that you are. So
1: yeah, it's, um, I, sorry, I should also clarify when I say reverse osmosis water it is with minerals added back in according to like a standardized, um, measurement list that the, the, um, amphibian, uh, conservation breeders use. Um, so it's reconstituted reverse osmosis water.
0: Okay. I see. I see. Yeah. And could there have been some variable in the municipal supply coming in that might have been part of the problem as well i mean like for example let's just say that instead of doing this in panama let's just say for argument's sake you did it i don't know it, well let's just say that you did it in in british columbia and you had a different municipal oh, yeah. water source would that have had different outcomes you think in terms of the percentage of, of froglets that metamorphose with spindly leg
1: Absolutely, I think it easily could. Um, and this is also why we were measuring like baseline water parameters for the municipal water, um, as it went through all the different filtration processes too, so that we could keep track of that as a factor when we got to our analysis.
0: And do you, is this particular species a little bit more sensitive to these things than say, another species like, um, like one of the dendrobatids, like, let's just say like Her- oratus or ufagopamilia or something like that? Is this species more S- sensitive.
1: It's. I mean, it certainly seems that way, but I. <laughs> I couldn't say because you would have to. I mean, to say that conclusively, you'd have to have different species in exactly the same setup and see which one has the highest prevalence of it. um So. It it, it did seem that way though, but it, it like like you said, it could have easily just been the specific environment that they were being raised in, the municipal water, temperature any other number of factors going on in that population.
0: What about the health of the, of the parents? Did you, was there any kind of supplementation, like a dietary supplementation? Like where, um, I know you said you're using cricket nymphs. Were they dusted with some sort of a supplement prior to letting them breed?
1: Yeah, yeah. So we used, um, I can't remember the exact name of it, M- Missouri, though. We, we did supplement them, so we dusted the crickets with Missouri um, on an alternating schedule. Okay, I see. So, like every every couple weeks or so,
0: was that like a Missouri, like a Missouri gut load for the crickets, or was something added to them? Uh,
1: no, it was uh, it was a dusting, okay. just a dusting. Okay, yeah, for gut loading, they were um, they were given vegetables, things like that.
0: Okay, yeah, I'm just curious. I've I've seen Missouri, I've actually used Missouri products for um actually my daughter's hamster eats a missouri diet but i didn't know that nice, they had yeah. uh yeah i didn't know that they had a, a like a supplement that you could dust feeders with
1: yeah i i think it's called i believe it's called better bug <laughs> i think that that might be the name of it yeah
0: yeah i'll have to check it out
1: yeah for sure i mean in my paper like all of these standardized like details on husbandry are also listed in the paper i'm just racking my brain to remember them all right now
0: so Okay, all things being equal, then let's just to, I guess, to sum everything up, what's the best recipe or what's the best concoction or however you want to call it in terms of getting these tadpoles to metamorphose without developing SLS? Like what's the magic, uh, the magic recipe?
1: So I'll have to walk you through, through my findings a little bit further to, to explain that point. Um, but okay, so basically, what I discovered with my my experiments was that I had a correlation between this phosphate reactor breaking and an increased prevalence of SLS, and the phosphate reactor being installed and a decreased prevalence of SLS in the population. Of course, correlation doesn't mean causation, and because I didn't explicitly test um, phosphate content in the water as a factor in SLS, I was another person just making an anecdote at the end of my research. So what I did end up being able to do, though, was because I had a number of tadpoles, um, and I knew the exact number of days it took each one of them to metamorphose, I was able to look at, okay, the number of days this tadpole spent as a tadpole, and then calculate how much out of its lifespan as a tadpole it spent In the water before the phosphate reactor was repaired so how much out of this tadpole's life as a tadpole did it spend in potentially high phosphate water and so i named this variable like phosphate exposure time and i was able to model the prevalence of sls in my population in response to that exposure time in my statistics, this ended up being the only factor that had any significant effect on the prevalence of SLS. Um, and like I said, this is just an anecdote because I didn't explicitly test for this properly. Um, so, it, it, what that tells me is that phosphate content was important in that particular population. I also found out because I had been tracking my water parameters religiously over the course of my experiment that my calcium content free calcium content of the water I was rearing the tadpoles in was pretty well, pretty well like the same consistent over the course of experiment. So it looked to me like what was going on was that SLS was correlated with a high phosphate to low calcium ratio. This was also really consistent with what was found in that previous study I was telling you about with Adelopus glyphos tadpoles. So these authors, they found that raising their tadpoles in reconstituted reverse osmosis water decreased the prevalence of SLS in that population. And in their discussion, the authors speculated that reconstituted reverse osmosis water has a much higher ratio, so more calcium to phosphate than carbon filter water, and they also speculated that this might have been a factor. So it was all kind of coming together. So something's going on with the calcium phosphate homeostasis and... um, and
0: sls you know so right right off the top of my head and i'm just i'm curious if anybody else is thinking the same thing as me the calcium to phosphorus ratio in feeder insects i know is one of those things where people are trying to find a correct balance i think i think it's generally considered like a one-to-one calcium to phosphate ratio is preferred i mean if anybody out there knows um, you know more about this definitely hit me up but so I know certain species, like for example, like black soldier fly larva, are touted as being a perfect feeder because they have a, a one-to-one calcium to phosphorus ratio. Is that something that is? I guess let's like, let's think of it through the through the lens of of again like feeding. Um, I mean, obviously, since they're getting that from the environment, since they're amphibians, they're aquatic. They're drawing some of their nutrition from the environment around them in addition to the diet that they're eating as tadpoles. Is that kind of a way I could
1: uh, yeah yeah so I mean the interesting thing uh is the or the thing that I think is really important is that when tadpoles reach peak metamorphosis like when they're you know reaching the final stages of metamorphosis and they're turning into a little froglet their mouths are undergoing major reconstruction so they're unable to eat they're unable to get any calcium through their mouths and up until that point they, a lot of them have gills, and gills are also a, a major site of free calcium absorption for, cal, uh, for, for tadpoles. And when they're going through peak metamorphosis, they don't have gills either. Peak metamorphosis is also the stage that they're going through when they, they have those forelimbs pop out and they build their forelimbs. So it's the stage that they most need calcium to build bones, and it's also the stage that they're unable to get any calcium. They're basically cut off from their environment in terms of feeding and in terms of gill absorption. So what tadpoles do is they store calcium in these specialized sacs, they're called endolymphatic sacs, up until peak metamorphosis. And what I think was going on in my population was that due to high phosphate concentrations in the water relative to calcium, there was not enough free calcium for the tadpoles to get either Uh, probably by absorbing it in this case through the through, through their gills through the water and they were not able to store enough in those endolymphatic sacs to make it through peak metamorphosis with successful bone development
0: okay i see so just i mean for for me to sum it up i'm just trying to think of you know make sure i've got it correct so it's almost as though they're drawing nutrition from two sources they're drawing nutrition from the diet that they're being fed as well as the water that's around them, the excessive phosphate essentially didn't allow them to build up that extra calcium reserve. And then during development, when they needed it, they just didn't have it. Is that, am I, have I got it so far?
1: Yep, that's exactly it. And in my case, you know, the amount they were getting from their diet was completely standardized. So we're talking only about the amount that they're absorbing through the water they're reared in.
0: Now, for these water parameters, with with the high, with the um, elevated phosphate, and obviously you're going to have the values. I'm assuming in in the paper. Is this something that someone could test at home? Like, say say a hobbyist has a group of frogs that that are just consistently coming out with spindly leg syndrome. Is there a a, a way of testing that water at home that might be able to guide this particular hobbyist in terms of what the problem might be, and if if you know water quality needs to be changed, act accordingly.
1: Definitely. Yeah. Um, so, okay. So I actually, I went back to Panama after this project, after I, after I defended my thesis and I finalized another study where we actually explicitly tested calcium and phosphate levels and how it affected SLS prevalence. Um, this time in another species, because we could do it with a whole clutch of eggs. So it was on an atalopa species and, that study found a very similar thing. Um, basically I'll just kind of long story short, what we concluded was consider supplementing your water. If it's softer than 50 milligrams per liter of calcium hardness. Um, that was the conclusion we came to is that calcium content of the tadpole rearing water is ultimately the most important thing. Cause from that second study that we did, we found that that was the number one factor was how much do you calcium do you supplement your water so 50 milligrams per liter was the number that we ended up finding that you want to have at least that level of hardness
0: i see and um the the equipment that reconstitutes it is it kind of just um like is it tailored to these particular tadpoles or is it just sort of like a general all purpose um you know reconstitution of of I, I I I'm embarrassed myself because I don't know too much about RO, other than it strips everything out. But I've never really understood how it how you add stuff back. So, is this kind of like a universal um, mix or combination that would just go with any type of RO um, reconstitution, no, they, or it's tailored to meet the needs?
1: There, I'm embarrassed because I can't remember the name of the standardized mix that you follow. It's available online to anyone who wants it. Um, I believe it's the is it the amphibian arc standardized procedures for captive breeding programs for amphibians? I could send it to you in a link, like that you could put up along with this podcast, honestly, once I remember what exactly it is. But yes, there is a recipe available. You basically you strip the water of everything with any um reconstituted or reverse osmosis procedure, and then there's a recipe in um like milligrams per liter of salts that you add back into the water and anyone can do this at home and it is available online. And I just can't remember the name of this, this document.
0: (laughs) No, that definitely makes it a little bit more, uh, I guess, straight, straightforward because I mean, I've, I've made it abundantly clear. I'm not very, very good with chemistry (laughs) and um, I I know I would struggle trying to get these perfect values. So, I mean, if it's obviously a product that you can buy with relative, uh, relative ease, that would be a lot e- a lot easier than having to measure all these values, at least at least for me. Yeah. Anyway.
1: It's the ah, okay, here we go. It's the amphibian husbandry resource guide. That is what it is. From the ASA Association of Zoos and Aquariums.
0: Yeah, actually I think I have I have that somewhere.
1: It's in there, yeah. Under a section for reconstituted reverse osmosis water. And all you have to do is you have your you have to have your salts and you have to have a good scale. And then basically just add it in according to the recipe like you're baking a cake
0: okay that's pretty it's pretty interesting and it is
1: and so sorry i was just gonna say like from there you sh- you should in theory be good but it's not always the case sls varies ridiculously from species to species it seems
0: well that was the next question i was gonna i'm gonna follow up i'm, I'm sorry i didn't mean to interrupt you but um no, no. I, I started thinking again about the the vitamins the the b vitamin content can you elaborate a little bit more on that
1: not really unfortunately because like i said like that first experiment it just my 5 out of 86 tadpoles was it it's just not enough for me to draw any conclusions on that so the vitamin b content it remains a mystery
0: okay i see i was just yeah i wasn't sure if you if you picked up anything else along the way
1: i mean i can tell you a little bit more about the results of of the follow up experiment i did because i think those ones are important um It basically, when we went back and we manipulated calcium supplementation levels, and then we also manipulated phosphate levels in the water. What we found when we went back and we did this properly was that there's a big difference in SLS prevalence um, uh, caused by calcium supplementation. So basically increased calcium supplementation drastically decreases SLS prevalence. In particular, you want to have water, like I said, that was no softer than 50 milligrams per liter. The really wacky thing for me personally was that this experiment also found that that supplementing the water with phosphates in this species, in this case, actually also decreased the prevalence of SLS in low calcium treatments, um, which is the opposite of what I found were suspected from my previous experiment, but it also makes sense because bones are made of calcium phosphate. So you need to have at least a small amount of phosphate in your water to develop bones healthy. So basically what you want to do is you want to have some phosphates in your water, but not too many. And you want to have lots of calcium in your water. And that is what we know from the research up to date conclusively, everything else pretty mysterious.
0: It definitely shed a lot of light on. And it's, it's funny because it's a I mean, I know it took a long time to get that, but it seems like it's fairly straightforward, actually.
1: I mean, it makes perfect sense when you think about how bones are made and what they're made of, for sure. Um, it's just a very difficult thing to prove with an experiment or to at least get good evidence for, I should say. Science never proves anything, really.
0: Yeah, well, I mean, it's it's still, it's, it's still just such an intriguing topic because, like you said, there's still so many other things that we... Um, we need to figure out as well. So yeah. Uh, based on your research, what would you, I mean, other than some of the stuff that we've, we've talked about so far, I mean, what recommendations would you make to someone who's looking to rear dart frogs correctly and avoid SLS?
1: Yeah. Um, okay. So number one, I would say test your water hardness. If your water is softer than 50 milligrams per liter of calcium. Supplement your water that you're rearing the tadpoles in, get it above 50 milligrams per liter. Two, avoid overfeeding your tadpoles because, in a 2018 study that found the difference in SLS prevalence between reconstituted osmosis water and carbon filter water, that study also found that overfeeding tadpoles was a statistically significant predictor of SLS. So, overfeeding also can cause SLS. Um, number three, if you still have SLS and you're not overfeeding your tadpoles and you have water that is harder than 50 milligrams per liter, then get a phosphate reactor. <laughs> Those are the three things I would suggest. Um, if you, oh, sorry, go ahead.
0: For my, I have some listeners out there who are big into reef tanks and they're, they're probably having a good laugh right now, but how much would something like that cost a, a phosphate reactor?
1: Oh my God.
0: Oh, I mean, 100 no bucks, 1,000 bucks. I'm going to Google
1: it right now. Okay. <laughs> I'm going to Google it. Because, of course, I was just working on whatever this the Smithsonian provided there. Um, phosphate reactor. I can't imagine it's cheap, hey? Let's see. Phosphate reactor for reef supplies. Okay. Not bad. I'm, I'm looking at these. Yeah, okay, like 200 bucks.
0: Yeah, that's what I'm seeing. I'm seeing anywhere from like 75 up to like 200. Okay, so it's a it's a reasonable investment then.
1: Yeah, for like an upper end one you're talking about 200 bucks. The one that we had was called PhosphoBan. PhosphoBan okay. reactor 150.
0: Okay, I got gotcha. you. Yes. All right. So it's it's within the realm of something that the average person could could get.
1: Yeah, no, not bad. 71 bucks. Um, but I mean, ultimately I do caution against this because the, the second study that we did that actually for real tested calcium phosphate levels as a factor, it ended up finding that it was really the calcium that is the determining factor. Uh, phosphate were, you know, phosphate levels are kind of like secondary to that.
0: Interesting. You know, I'm just curious as well, was there any size difference in the froglets that developed and were they all kind of consistently the same size or did, did, did. Uh, froglet size vary depending on um the different parameters that you you reared them in
1: and oh i weighed my froglets but i don't think i actually analyzed that as um as a variable in my experiment so i don't want to say anything that isn't properly backed up with data
0: okay yeah i've just i've had i've had different froglets come out obviously there's there's size variation so I was just curious, just, you know, just for my own, my own personal.
1: I can tell you that anecdotally, like the ones that were under the, the lower, lower end husbandry protocol, um, they took longer to develop. Actually, that's not anecdotal. That was confirmed. They took longer to develop and, and metamorphose and anecdotally they did look smaller.
0: I see. Mm-hmm. So what research do you think needs to be done? in the future with regards to, um, SLS.
1: Yeah. Uh, well, more experiments on the calcium to phosphate ratio would be great, um, to replicate it and to see again, if it can be generalized to most species, or if this is something that really depends on us on like per species. Um, so I would like to see more experiments on the calcium to phosphate ratio. I would also like to see how, dietary calcium supplementation plays a role in sls so can dietary calcium supplementation make up for a lack of free calcium in the water that's something i'd really like to know because like you were saying it's um it's a lot easier to just control what you're feeding your animals than to try to like do really complicated stoichiometry and supplement and control your tadpole rearing water especially in the case of dart frogs that are usually breeding in in small pools of water in your vivarium so
0: you know, it's funny. I just had a thought, actually, when I'd had, and I'd, I'd covered this topic many, many times on the show in passing or whatnot, but I had a group of tadpoles that wasn't doing particularly well. And when I added, I always thought that the magic ingredient was more protein, which it may. It, I, I've heard from other people who've confirmed that it may very well be, but the protein source that I added was primarily black soldier fly larva, which, like I said before, hmm. has a one-to-one Calcium to phosphorus ratio, which is apparently perfect. Again, I'm just pulling at strings here, but I'm curious if the addition of that into the diet—I wasn't having—I wasn't having SLS. I was having uh, just smaller, poorly developed tadpoles. I'm like, when I added that, now I'm curious if the calcium to phosphorus ratio in the frog's diet also is affecting the size and you know robustness of them when they when they finally do pop out legs and come out on land.
1: Yeah. Yeah. I I really would love to know that too. I think that that for me, it would be the, the best next step is, is looking at the same sort of factors, but in the diet. Um, when it comes to protein, there was a study, um, that looked at protein in the diet and they did not find it to be a significant factor in the prevalence of SLS. It had no effect. Um, but that was again on one specific species. So.
0: Yeah. It's just one of those things I've kind of been i don't know kind of been obsessing about is why (laughs) why that why that works so well but again you know what it's worked it worked well for me under my circumstances but i know other people who have never had that problem so the question is is it my is it my municipal water supply which could Mm -hmm. be could be overly high in phosphate that's yeah that's 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 wild yeah
1: yeah Yeah. There's a lot of work to be done still. I mean, so little is ultimately so little is known even about the needs of these animals, uh, when it comes to husbandry. So,
0: yeah, well, again, that's why, you know, I like to hear from people like you because you you guys are doing the type of research that helps everyone understand this and make new strides in terms of how we keep everything.
1: Yeah. And I I definitely like encourage people who keep them at home to take an experimental approach. If they go through everything I've listed here, um, you know, the checklist for if you're having SLS problems and they still have high SLS problems, uh, I would say, see if you can standardize things, take an experimental approach, manipulate one thing at a time and and look at what you get. If you find something interesting, report it. (laughs) Um, Something that, that everyone can do. And anecdotes are important, even if it's not, you know, peer reviewed or whatever, just putting it out in the world and your forum or whatever it may be is, is a great thing to do.
0: The forum's definitely helpful. I mean, there's a lot of people out there who are just definitely well-versed in, in dark frog husbandry and whatnot. And the hard thing is there's just, there's so much of it. You know what I mean? Like you yeah. said, like you said, in the beginning, there's so much to go through and you have to ask yourself, well, if I've got a million and one different possibilities that all make well that might all work on their own, where do I go? I mean, you you definitely took on a that was a, that was <laughs> yeah. a big task. I give you a For sure. I give you a lot of a lot of credit. That must have been that must have been uh, taking a lot of patience.
1: Yeah, yeah, but uh, it was a good time. <laughs>
0: yeah. Well, yeah. We're, we're kind of winding down here, but I wanted to ask you if you have any plans to work with frogs at all in the future?
1: Uh, actually, I mean, right now I'm a dog trainer. I've switched careers since I finished my school, but I'm not closed off to working with frogs again in the future. Um, issue is, uh, you know, lack of lack of funding for the type of conservation work that really interests me. But if the opportunity presents itself, absolutely. I would do it again. Um, I really love it. So.
0: Yeah, it's a lot of fun. It's, it, there's nothing else like dealing with, dealing with frogs. I, I always tell people that I, all the time. I absolutely time and love it. Yeah, yeah. It nothing, nothing beats it. Yeah, yeah, yeah.
1: They're wonderful.
0: <laughs> well, Kathleen, I want to thank you so much for. I mean, I know it's it's a lot to take. I'm still, I'm still processing at home myself. I know there's a lot to take in, but um, I want to really thank you for taking the time to come on and cover the paper and cover all your findings with us. I I really appreciate it. And um, I, if if anybody wanted to. I'd like to include a link to the, link to the, the, the abstract, actually I have the abstract, but I was wondering if I could, uh, get a link to the, the entire paper if possible. But, um, if anybody wants to find more about your research and spindly leg syndrome, where would you recommend that they go to find out?
1: Oh my goodness. Um, well, it's not just my research. That's the problem is that there was a paper before me and there was also a paper after me. And both of those papers are really important. And, um, so my paper is in zoo biology, the two papers that are also very important that I recommend everyone reads are in PLOS one. I think that the best, most straightforward way to go about that would be that I just send them to you directly and you can make them available to everyone.
0: Okay. Um, That sounds great. I don't have
1: my own website or anything like that, unfortunately.
0: Yeah. Anything you could send over, I can always add into the, um, into the show description in in the notes. I can put links and whatnot in there. So.
1: I would say it's like a triage of like top three papers you should read if you're experiencing, if you're experiencing SLS, there's, there's three of them. Um, give them a read and, um, yeah, yeah,
0: definitely. Yeah. Let
1: that inform your decisions.
0: Yeah, no, it's been very interesting. I always like having good references for stuff like that, but.
1: For sure. I hope that, uh, you know, my explanations made some sense. Breaking down those experiments is a lot. There's a lot to cover. So hopefully, uh, hopefully it, it worked out for, for everyone and they can understand what I said there.
0: Oh yeah. No, 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 definitely. I, I, now that we're getting to the end, I, I, I totally get it. It's, I mean, it's, it's a lot, it's, it's very intense. I'll be honest with you, but I, 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 I think I got it. I got a handle on it.
1: Well, yeah, it was a wild ride. It was a wild ride yeah. for sure. It was, uh, you know a year and a half of tinkering with tadpoles summarized in like a very short podcast so
0: (laughs) yeah yeah i know i know i i I, when i was when i was writing the outline for this i was looking at it and i thought to myself you know what i've got all these questions that let me just have kathleen just just go through it because i was reading everything and i'm like wow this this is just so much went into this it's like you know what i'm just gonna sit back and let kathleen lead us through the whole discussion and uh and we'll go from there happy but, to do so yeah no no it was a pleasure it was it was very very interesting and you definitely shed light on one of those topics that a lot of people you know like you said there's just been a lot of uh just like an, anecdotal evidence and, and hearsay and whatnot and and some of the stuff that's actually probably people have probably figured out in their basements but like you said it just didn't make it into a journal or something like that which still doesn't discredit it but i don't know
1: yeah yeah i mean like i said i at the end of Two experiments and a year and a half of tinkering, I was so, so, so sure that what I had found was the calcium phosphate ratio. But I can't even say at the end of that that it was conclusive because it was just an anecdote. I didn't test for it explicitly. (laughs) So, yeah.
0: Yeah. Well, look, it's this is, you know, this is. Science I guess isn't a, science isn't about finding the answers I guess it's about finding the the, the way fi- it's not about finding the answers it's about finding the way to find the answers I guess
1: Uh-huh If that's Yeah and I mean the my findings from from my experiments basically gave us the groundwork necessary to go back and do it again a second time and nail down that factor of calcium and phosphate once we went back at, uh you know for a follow-up experiment so Yeah exactly
0: Yeah it's pretty wild all right everyone i want to thank kathleen so much for coming on it was it was definitely it, it was it was a wild ride we definitely picked up a lot and um like i said if you can get a hold of the paper i'm going to try and post a, a link in the description of the show notes you guys can check it out and follow up um if not i'll, I'll definitely be able to make some of kathleen's research available if you guys i just, I just got to figure out how so well other than that again it was a great discussion it was a great show as usual i learned a lot i hope you guys did too and other than that you know Enjoy uh, enjoy what's going on out there in the world and uh, catch up with you guys again soon.